Welcome to It Just So Happened. I am Richard Pulsford, a stand-up comedian and amateur historian, and this is the Alternative History Show. Now, it's a show of two halves, where in part one, we'll explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 23rd of June. And in part two, we'll explore some alternative histories for the location of today's show, which is Ludlow. Yes, we visited Leicester, Glasgow, Brighton, and now Ludlow. (laughs) It's a market town. (laughs) Cheery audience for Sunday. Uh, Yes, this is a market town, the largest in South Shropshire, and has a population of about 11,000. Now, Ludlow was described by Country Life in 2007 as the most vibrant small town in England. Yay! <laughs> yes, welcome to the pantomime. Um, <laughs> uh, since 2013, it's had its own fringe festival, an independent arts, community, and culture festival, and which we are pleased to be performing as part of today. We are the guests of the Blue Boar, meeting in its fabulous sitting room space. One review on TripAdvisor, which is typical, describes the pub as nothing pretentious. Just a friendly old pub with wholesome food served with a smile. And talking of no pretensions, yet many smiles, let me introduce the panel for the show. So please welcome Simon Bolton. Lisa Vernon. Darren Archer. And Gerard Harris. So without further ado, our first guest is Simon Bolton. Simon used to perform stand-up on the Fringe Circuit in London but now co-runs a theatre company here in Ludlow called Rooftop Theatre. Thank you, Simon. (laughs) A free club, thank you. Um, Some of you think it might be a bit early for drinking, but this is Ludlow, and... uh, (laughs) (laughs) What you say? Yeah, it's it's, it's all on sale downstairs. It's the 23rd of June in 1912. 117 years ago, Alan Turing was born. And being gay, he was immediately criminalised. He was also a genius and the father of modern computing, but the thing that really caught up with him at the end was uh, the sad fact that he was homosexual at the wrong time. Um, He was born in Maidervale in England, um, which meant uh, if he'd lived, he'd have to wait another 55 years to get laid legally, which was (laughs) sad because he died first. Um, um, but, uh, coincidentally, in 1861, 60 years earlier, almost to the day, the act of buggery was made a no longer a hangable offence. So he would have been okay had he managed to get around to it. Um, we don't know very much about whether he did, but uh, that will, I'll come back to that later. There's uh, a blue plaque in Maidervale now on his house. There's one in Hastings where he stayed for a little while. There's another blue plaque in his uh, uh, house in Guildford that his parents lived on. In fact, there's a rash of blue plaques for Alan Turing all over the country, which means that someone's obviously really tried to, to make it up to him. Really hard. None of which he ever saw, presumably. Uh, when he was young, many of his teachers noticed that he was a genius, uh, being very good at sums. And also, uh, he wanted to be the monitor quite a lot, hung around in the library <laughs> at the time. 
and didn't like school sports, which in my day was always a dead cert being called a puff and being beaten up around the back of the bike sheds. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not even a genius spy, I'm hoping for a blue plaque at some point. Um, he enjoyed his lesson so much that at the age of 13, he cycled 60 miles to get to his new private boarding school and stayed overnight in a pub. Uh, and there's no sort of record of what he got up to there. But uh, it's a real strange irony that in the 1920s, a boy of his age could, could do something, could have the freedom like that, uh, at the same time that people were being regularly put to death by the state, and women didn't even have the proper vote. So uh, that's exactly the sort of golden age that uh, the Tory party uh, <laughs> ready to vote for when they get the chance. Um, once he got to school, he pedalled there and ended up there with a massive hangover, two flat tyres and a very sore arse, apparently. His, uh, <laughs> his headmaster discovered he was really, really good at sums and science and wrote a letter to his parents saying, if Alan is to stay at public school, he must aim at becoming educated and concentrate on the classics. If he is to be solely a scientific specialist, he will be wasting his time. There we are. So, another bum note for Alan there. And not a blue plaque for Sherborne School. And uh, undeterred, he ignored all of this. He spent his whole life ignoring other people, Alan, which is good on him. He went on with his maths, discovered Albert Einstein, and also he discovered his first love, a fellow pupil called Christopher Morecambe, with whom he shared his passion for maths and much else, hopefully. Uh, but being Alan and being tragically unlucky, despite his, uh, he, the fact he was ecstatically happy, Christopher died suddenly in 1930 from drinking infected cow's milk. And you, you just can't make it up because <laughs> this, it's, everything happened to Alan. Um, uh, apparently he became an atheist at this point, which you can't really blame him for. Uh, he coped with his grief by working even harder. He wrote a really heart-rending letter to Christopher's mum I'm sure I could not have found anywhere another companion so brilliant and yet so charming. I regarded my work as something to share with him, and I think he felt a little of the same about me. Which is this. I know I must work as if he was still alive, because that is what he would have liked me to do. So we have a lot to thank poor old Chris for. And Alan was later awarded a first-class honours degree in maths at King's College, Cambridge, and he got another blue plaque. Then he invented the universal Turing machine and the algorithm, apparently. Uh, and uh, if you switch on the Turing machine, if one was ever built, it could do absolutely anything it wanted to. It could take over the world and would be impossible to switch off. Uh, no one has yet built one, but we do have Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> the war happened and Alan suddenly became very popular. The historian and wartime co-breaker Asa Briggs said, you needed exceptional talent, you needed genius at Bletchley, and Turing's was that genius, even if he was a filthy homosexual. So it's really only when you need him. Um, he had a reputation for eccentricity at Bletchley, he was a sensitive boy, he suffered badly from hay fever, and would cycle to work wearing a gas mask to keep the pollen off. He also changed his tea mug to the radiator to stop it from being stolen. <laughs> happy days, happy days they had there. Uh, during the war, he and his colleagues built computing machines to decipher encoded German messages and work which saved many, many thousands of people's lives. Uh, in the 1940s, their machines were all called whimsical names like the bomb, Enigma, Enigma, sorry, Colossus, 
the Heath Robinson, and my favourite, which is Delilah. Uh, a bit more snappy than ZX Spectrum. Uh, <laughs> but they were considered to be the direct precursor of modern computers. And then in 46, at the end of the war, Alan was appointed an OBE by King George IV, and it was all done in secrecy. It was for his wartime efforts and served his services towards the computer games industry. Uh, but as everything was top secret, <laughs> he couldn't tell anyone. He had to wait 50 years until uh, he got, uh, I can't remember, the little thing, Pac-Man. Uh, in fact, his work was thought to be so potentially dangerous in the wrong hands that his computers were hacked by the government with a pickaxe. <laughs> 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 Undeterred in exchange for another blue plaque, and you're up for time. Alan uh, designed an automatic computing machine, also known as the Commodore 64, and devised the Turing test, that being a sufficiently good intelli artificial intelligence could be indistinguishable from a human being in conversation, which led directly to Facebook and Twitter. Um, and they still haven't found out whether that's true or not. Finally, he got bored of computers, studied pattern formation in mathematical biology, and the biggest thing that came out of that is a study of uh, the spots and stripes on cat's fur. And why it is that they always stick their bum in your face when you're trying to go to sleep in bed. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's about really all we know about Alan's private life. Or, um, I mean, it's documented his, his, uh, his mathematical brilliance. Uh, but presumably for a gay man at that time, he, he liked to be secret too about that. It is known that he proposed marriage in 1941 to Miss Clark, who worked in Hut 8 at Fletchley. But uh, when he told her that he was gay, they decided to call it off. Which uh, I found works quite often in that uh, respect. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mrs. There you go, decided it wouldn't be appropriate. But in 1952, Alan finally got his act together and had a relationship with a 19-year-old man who then went and burgled his house straight off. So uh, just be careful. Pride in Ludlow. Uh, when he reported the crime, he told the police he'd had a bit of a fling with this boy and then was immediately charged with gross indecency. Uh, and instead of saying to them, do you know who I am? Do you know what I did? Do you know how many blue plaques I've got? He kept secret because he was British and stiff up to lip, up lipped and uh, pleaded guilty. And they proposed for him uh, chemical castration, uh, whose effects are depression, loss of libido, disorientation and despair, much like a Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in 8th of June 1954, uh, almost to the day uh, today, he, at the age of 41, he was found dead from cyanide poisoning with a half-eaten apple by his bed. And uh, despite some people say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't suicide, um, you know, he always ate an apple and a... Uh, there was a thing that he, he used to gold plate spoons in his, in his bedroom for some bizarre reason. And they said, that must be it. But uh, there's a conspiracy theory that the British Secret Service considered him a security risk due to his homosexuality, and they had him assassinated. So, uh, Jeremy Hunt, be careful. <laughs> All those people who think he's a bit gay. Jeremy. Other people reckoned he was uh, actually just reenacting a scene from his favourite film, which was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> <laughs> How gay can you get? Uh, whatever the reason for his death, 
Steve Jobs of Apple fame can be thankful that Alan didn't die of something even more exotic like a poison dildo. <laughs> you Apple fan. When the tragedy was in time, <laughs> became better known as his massive contribution to the war effort was realised, Alan was eventually given a royal pardon by the Queen and Prime Minister then Gordon Brown in 2014, which was a little late, but a really nice try. Sorry, about that. He's had numerous tributes and honours, uh, including loads of statues and things named after him, like uh, the middle part of the Manchester city in a ring road. <laughs> <laughs> something if you want fame, that's something to go for. Uh, so, here we are on his 107th anniversary. Uh, who knows what he could have achieved in the time that he had later on we could you know you could be downloading yourself onto onto a floppy disk by now but um, <laughs> he didn't um, and perhaps we could hope that he might be awarded a new blue plaque from our soon-to-be new prime minister worded Alan Turing genius good egg all round but a bit of a bum boy <laughs> Simon Bolton So on this day, 23rd of June, in 1456, Margaret, Queen Consort of Scotland, was born in Copenhagen, the only daughter of King Christian I and Queen Dorothea of Denmark, Norway and Sweden. Margaret married James III of Scotland at the age of 13 at Holyrood Abbey on the recommendation of the French King, Charles VII, and as a means of cancelling all Scottish debt. Scotland had owed Denmark for the taxation of the Hebrides and the Isle of Man, 100 mercs per year, according to the terms of the Treaty of Perth. However, Christian was facing an uprising in Sweden and political troubles in Denmark, and he was strapped for cash. So the Scots sent eight ambassadors to Denmark in the summer of 1468, and the Treaty of Copenhagen was agreed. With the marriage of Margaret and James, the debt for the Western Isles was cancelled. King Christian agreed to pay 60,000 florins as a dowry. Norway's rights in Orkney were pledged as collateral for 50,000 of the florins, and the other 10,000 was to be paid in cash. But Christian could only come up with 2,000 florins, so he pledged his rights to the Shetlands as collateral. Both the Orkney and Shetland Islands were later permanently annexed as the money was never paid, and this ended nearly 600 years of Norse rule over the islands something which the Danes and Norwegians disputed for centuries afterwards. But as it was arguably legal, there was little that they could do about it. Margaret arrived in Scotland in the summer of 1469, met her husband-to-be for the first time, got married and was crowned. Margaret was described as beautiful, gentle, understanding and sensible, and always dressed in the latest fashionable and expensive jewellery and clothes. Historians would say... She was far better qualified to rule than her husband, who was unpopular and ineffective as he was unwilling to administer justice fairly and also pursued an alliance with England. Boo hiss. Yes. I'm glad I'm not doing this in Scotland. Uh, she and her husband lived apart, James in Edinburgh and Margaret in Stirling, with their three children, the eldest of whom went on to become James IV. She died at Stirling Castle in 1486, aged just 30. There were unfounded rumours of poisoning. James sent a supplication to the Pope asking that she be made a saint, and James himself died two years later. They're buried alongside one another at Cambus Kenneth Abbey near Stirling. 
so I'm doing the serious bits in the middle, as you can see. <laughs> um, I did have a joke, which I'll do. Uh, just as well that the debt for the Western Isles was cancelled, as so often with such spiralling debt, the sky's the limit. Yeah. Oh, I, had to get, I had to get something in, didn't I? Uh, so, on to our second guest. This is Lisa Vernon. Now, Lisa has reliably informed me that she is immortal. And uh, this has helped her immensely in her career as both a historian and archaeologist. It's not often she comes out in the daytime, especially during the summer, so this will be a rare sighting. Her specialisms include beheadings, medieval weaponry, and weird ways to bury people. Uh, she tells me she once worked in a toilet museum, so she knows a lot about the history of poo. Over to Lisa. Okay, so in a little bit of preparation uh, for today, uh, I did a little survey amongst other comedians, and I asked them, is there anything remotely funny about typewriters? And 60% of the respondents said, no. Sorry. Uh, 30% of respondents sent me pictures of computer keyboards with the words keys rearranged to spell rude words. 8% said yes, and then proceeded to tell me boring facts about typewriters and send me quite terrible puns. So I'm going to share a few of those with you first. <laughs> this will be right up your street. Hey. I think you're being typecast. Hey. The key is not to get stuck on facts. <laughs> and this is the best one. <laughs> Sorry. Are you ribbing me? Oh. <laughs> okay. So 2% um, of the respondents, my boyfriend, uh, said a dyslexic goth archaeologist talking about typewriters. Well, that's a winner. Um, <laughs> so this might be the toughest 10 minutes of your life and mine. Uh, it's not easy being a goth with dyslexia. Uh, because the handwritten note is our preferred form of communication. I, uh, someone tipped over the bins in our area, and I left a note for the refuse collectors. I will not tolerate this filth in our public area. Only I didn't write the word public. Oh. <laughs> and now I'm hiding from the bin men because they're actually quite interested to hear what filth I will tolerate in that particular area. <laughs> it really wasn't easy being a dyslexic goth in an RSA typing class either. I once wrote, the queer brown god jumped a lady fox. <laughs> I'm pretty much offended everyone in my class with that one statement. Anyway, what I'm here to talk about is the typewriter. So, in Milwaukee, woo! Christopher Lennon Scholes, <laughs> I get a lot, he patented his mechanical writing machine on June the 23rd, 1868, which wrote at a speed far exceeding that, exceeding that of a pen. I can't imagine a more interesting and stimulating set of experiments than the ones that resulted in the QWERTY keyboard. This configuration helped prevent jams and increased typing speeds by putting frequently combined letters further apart. Now we could have had gherkin or twerky, but that would have led to your R's getting stuck. <laughs> uh, initially, the first typewriter was only in uppercase. 
Now this has led to significant historical misinterpretation of the level of anger in written correspondence <laughs> of that particular era. But probably the most exciting thing about the typewriter was the reveal. You could not actually see what you had typed until you moved on to the next line. Now this might have added a little frisson to the proceedings, but whilst dyslexia was invented in 1887 by Rudolf Berlin, it wasn't until 1956 that correction fluid was invented <laughs> by Betty Nesmith Graham. Yes. Now, the other thing she did of note was to give birth to Michael Nesbitt, one of the 60s band, The Monkeys. Now, it is said, if you leave enough monkeys with enough typewriters <laughs> in a room, then the laws of the universe decrees that eventually, well, they will write the works of Shakespeare. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever listened to The Monkeys, but interestingly, they didn't write any of those songs. In fact, Neil Diamond did. But actually, if you'd left real monkeys in a room full of typewriters, what you'd have got is typewriters covered in poo. <laughs> <laughs> and hundreds of messages simply demanding, we want a bandana. Simian dyslexia. Monkeys are very poor at spelling. They don't really care for bananas, and they're huge fans of Guns N' Roses. So... <laughs> Anyway, as far as I can see, there are two advantages that typewriters have over modern-day devices. The first, you do not have to worry about your search history being found. In fact, just the last sentence you typed is imprinted on the ribbon. So you should be safe unless, of course, it's kill them all. <laughs> There's no autocorrect. So no sending random messages that have been corrected. I once told my boss, I'm good in bed. Actually, what I meant to say was I'm home in bed. I was ill. <laughs> there is one drawback to a typewriter, particularly that early model. You can't use it on a train. I've tried. So the invention of typewriters also led to the first known piece of typewriter art. Now imagine how interesting your life must be if your hobby is to make art from typewriting. So the first piece of typewriter art was an image of a butterfly composed of brackets, dashes, slashes, and an asterisk created by that highly productive office worker, Flora Stacy, in 1898. Well, Revlon put a stop to this rare form of art in 1932, when they invented the first coloured nail polish. The book, The Woman and the Typewriter, by Donald Hope, from Milwaukee Museum, is probably one of the most interesting books I've ever read. And in it, I found the quote. It's from 1974. The typewriter was destined to become an important force in American life. By providing a socially acceptable employment for women in the commercial world, it opened new office careers and, with the telephone, helped bring, in, bring women out of the kitchen and into the world of affairs. <laughs> now, I checked, because I wondered initially if that was meant to be the affairs of the world. But no, it seems that many saw the typewriter's greatest contribution to society as the potential it gave them to hit on their secretary. 
As someone who's personally had to suffer the indignity of an RSA typing class and a lecturer's boss, I believe the typewriter is the symbol of the oppression of women. I feel that suffragettes should have lobbed a few of those through some windows. <laughs> well, actually, no, I'm being unfair. The suffragettes created pamphlets on the typewriters. The White Rose Movement attempted to bring down the Nazis with theirs. And we would not have had the awesome typewriting bug scene in Naked Lunch without one. And that famous miserable goth, Frederick Nietzsche, wrote a short piece of prose comparing himself to a typewriter. Tis a thing like me, made of iron, yet easily twisted on journeys. Patience and tact are required in abundance, as well as fine fingers to users. And so inspired by that, I'm going to end on a poem. And this poem is dedicated to Mrs. Robinson, who was my RSA typing teacher. Are you ready for this? <laughs> to whom it may concern. Return, return, return! <sighs> Lisa, indent is better. And if you know, then use their name. Dear Mr. Riddick, now I'm high on Tipex, and everything looks the same. <laughs> the FD is sticky. <laughs> got too tricky. And now my ribbon is dry. The terms of the contract. Oh, I've lost the contact. Oh, oh. And now my finger is sporting a Y. <laughs> what am I doing here? I'm not cut out for this career. Kill them all! Kill them all! <laughs> down, down, down! <laughs> <laughs> If you gaze long enough into the abyss, the abyss will gaze back. Yours sincerely, Lisa Bennett. <laughs>
That's my comment. Uh, after being asked to lead a class on marriage at Indiana covering topics such as family relationships and economics, as well as sexual stimulation, intercourse and contraception, Kinsey sought but found little empirical evidence to explain familiar sexual conventions and social mores, so he decided to carry out a scientific study into human sexuality. The results of 18,000 interviews of men and women, which touched on various subjects including sadomasochism, extramarital relations and the number of partners of the same or the opposite sex, could be broken down to reveal trends by age, socio-economic status and religion, and reveal that some practices such as homosexuality were quite common, even though widely unacceptable at the time. The studies were criticised because of irregularities in the sampling and the general unreliability of personal communication and it scandalised conservatives who claimed he was supporting a communist agenda by eroding sexual morality and family values in America. But Kinsey was one of the first scientists to suggest that sexual identity exists on a spectrum, where people are either a zero, totally straight, or a six, totally gay, or some number in between based on past socio-sexual interactions. As my dad would say, he preferred Elton John when he was a zero. Well, I thought that'd be funny, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> he became director of the Indiana University's Institute for Sex Research in 1942. Anyway, uh, that's not particularly a segue into our third guest, but uh, <laughs> our third guest is Darren Archer. Darren was raised in Herefordshire and is a regular comedy performer in clubs and pubs across both England and Wales. He's been described as a larger-than-life character or a very likeable comedian with a gift for storytelling and a fantastic mass of hair and humour. Oh, I had a haircut. You've had a haircut, haven't yeah. you? Yes. <laughs> it was wrote in so long ago. Okay. Lo lovely introduction, thank you. Thank you. Today I'm here to tell you a lovely story. It's uh, in along with the themes of the happiness we're feeling now. It's about Adolf Hitler having his first visit to Paris. And basically, the, the story starts off in the morning as Adolf Hillary Hitler wakes up. <laughs> yes, Hillary was his middle name. Yes. Wakes up from his sleep, dreaming his dreams of Charlie Chaplin, Strudel, and those, those darn Jews. And uh, turns to his lover beside her and kisses them on the forehead and says, Wakey, wakey, Goebbels. It's time to go. <laughs> from downstairs, you can hear Eva Bourne shouting at the stairs, Come on, boys, time to get up, time to get up. I've made your favourite sugar puff sandwiches and sunny day. Because, oh, Eva, just, just five more minutes. Just five more minutes. Come on, boys, you've got a long day of tyranny in Paris today, so it's, it's time to get up. They get dressed in their finest leathers, looking like the extras from the Matrix film. <laughs> they put on their fresh makeup, ready to paint the town red. It's a glorious thing to see. Now, today is the 23rd of June, 1940. France has completely surrendered to the German occupation and Paris for the first time is open for Adolf Hitler. It has been Hitler's dream since he was a little dictator, segregating the children in the playground. <laughs> it was his dream to see Paris, to taste the food, to see the art and history. For France had completely surrendered, so now he could march and dance around the streets of Paris like Sidney Lauper in the music videos. Girls just want to have fun. <laughs> Hitler was a man of people, and to prove this, he ordered his army to clear the streets so there'd be no, no poor people, there'd be no queuing, and one of his biggest phobias, street performance. That's right. 
<laughs> Today was his day. He was Julia Roberts and Pretty Woman. He was the diva going to paint the town red and spend some money. Hitler would visit the Eiffel Tower and be amazed by it. But he turned to his architect and say, listen, I want you to build a taller, bigger, better, more pointier tower in Berlin. Now his architect turned to him and said, does, does size really matter? Take him away and have him shot, he said. At this point, this is when even Goebbels put their hand on his shoulder and say, don't worry, Hitler, size doesn't matter. <laughs> After that, Hitler went to the Louvre to see the beautiful art. Now, ever since Hitler was a little boy, he loved art and he wanted to be an artist, but his, his dad bullied him into the local politics side of things. But could you imagine what would have happened if he got to be an artist? You know, he would have been travelling the world, painting, doing all this art, and... You know, given its proper name, I suppose you'd call him a waiter, but uh, <laughs> Hitler had seen the beauty and the amazement of Paris, and he wanted to now try the food of Paris, so he wanted to go to the local restaurant. Now, the best restaurant at the time was called Le Cures. It's a beautiful restaurant, so he took all his generals there to eat. Now, when they rolled up, the maitre d'Ice was there waiting for them and introduced themselves said, Hitler, party of four. He says, I'm, I am sorry, we do not have... I know it's a crappy <laughs> impression of a Frenchman. I'm sorry, we do not have a reservation for you. He goes, uh, God, oh, do you know who I am? He said, yes, you are Hitler, but I have nothing for you. This is when Goebbels comes around the corner. He says, well, try uh, Nazi party. <laughs> and uh, in they go. They go and sit down. Now, the restaurant is completely empty. There is barely to zero staff in there but they still get the worst table in the place, right next to the water feature, which in this case was the toilet. And uh, they sit down at the table, and the waiter comes to take their order. They go, um, what's, what's the chef like today? I said, well, you know, we have, the chef is uh, quite new to us. He says, oh, he goes, what do you mean new? Well, he's only been in the job two days. Two days? What is his name? Toby. That's not very French, is it? He goes, bring forth Toby, I wish to talk to him. So, Toby comes forth to the table. And Toby is uh, an Irish, red-haired, spotty individual, like a Dr. Dot on his face. And he, he stands there in an apron that is quite disgustingly dirty. And he, he, Adolf, quite annoyed by this, says, who, who are you, Toby? He says, well, a few days ago, I was a toilet cleaner. He says, so what are you doing being a chef? He said, well, the weirdest thing happened was when the Germans turned up, all the Jewish staff disappeared. They took an extended holiday, they did. So I got quickly promoted. I'm now the head chef. Bloody hell. He goes, well, what would you recommend then? He goes, oh, yeah. Special of the day is Coco Bicycle. Coco Bicycle? Ah, Hitler was annoyed by this. He goes, don't you mean Coco Van? He goes, well, it would be, but I haven't got my driving licence yet. <laughs> A crap joke, I know, but I wasn't the <laughs> He goes, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hitler was so annoyed by this and said, listen, go away and bring us back spaghetti and meatballs, spaghetti and meatballs, you can't go wrong with that. So off he goes. A few, about an hour later, he comes back to the table and he sits down and in front of them is plates of spaghetti and meatballs and they begin to eat. A few moments into eating, Hitler bangs on the table and says, stop, stop a second, something is not right. I've only got one meatball. So he turns to give up. 
He turns to Gurin, Gurin goes, well, I've got two, but they're very small. <laughs> Hemler looks down and goes, well, mine are very similar. <laughs> this is when Gerbil stands up and goes, well, at least you've got some, I've got none at all. <laughs> Not amused by this, they send the food back. He calls Toby out of the kitchen and says, Toby, what the hell are you playing at here? He goes, I, I'm, I'm dreadfully sorry, I'm dreadfully sorry. He goes, listen, before you get taken away and shot, I need you to bring me a dessert, a dessert fitting of Adolf Hitler. He goes, well, you're in luck. I've made you an absolutely delicious brown milkshake. Brown milkshake? I mean chocolate. Well, chocolate's a bit of a rarity at the moment, but it's, I can assure you it's locally fresh, it's locally sourced, it's asked to table, and uh, basically it goes, okay, fine, you bring us four milkshakes, and if it's not the best milkshakes I've ever had, you'll be shot. So Toby, quite nervous, but still very angry on how he's been treated by Hitler, goes off to the kitchen. In the kitchen, all you can hear is straining and the sound of a blender and a lot of sugar being added. The milkshakes come to the table and Hitler and the rest of the table start to drink. But something happens. All of a sudden, after taking a few sips, Adolf Hitler slams on the table. Toby's worried now. I'm going to get shot. No, no. He stands up and Adolf Hitler goes, this milkshake is the best milkshake I've ever had. It's one of the tastiest. Oh, I can taste the nuts in it. It's absolutely amazing. I don't know what you've put in it, but it's brilliant. Everyone around the table agrees. Well, of course, it's Hitler. You've got to agree. He calls forth a soldier and says to the soldier, listen, take this proclamation down. I want all my boys to come to look yours to try this milkshake. What are you calling this? It's the Hitler milkshake. I want all my boys to come to look yours for my milkshake. I think they'll love it. What is, what is look yours in, in English? It's the yard. Oh, great. My... <laughs> My milkshake will bring all the boys to the yard, I guarantee it. And with that, he raised up his glass, drank it down, and ended his day. Toby survived. And that is the end of, end of the story for Adolf Hitler. And it was a lovely day, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, this is an alternative history show, so thank you, Dan. Uh, it was the 23rd of June, 1994, when it was announced that the Royal Yacht Britannia would be sold or scrapped. Now, designed as a royal residence to entertain guests around the world and as a hospital ship in time of war, Britannia was actually the 83rd and last royal yacht. Charles I had the first one in 1660. The previous royal yacht had been the Victoria and Albert III, the first one not to be powered by a sail. Although built for Queen Victoria, she was concerned about the yacht's stability, so she never actually stepped on board. Uh, perhaps she was also influenced by Prince Albert's being prone to unwanted leaks. A uh, bit of a niche joke there. Um, <coughs> Britannia was built at the John Brown & Co. shipyard in Clydebank and was one of the last fully riveted ships. It was hoped that a convalescence cruise would help King George VI ailing health. Brown & Co. received the order from the Admiralty for a new ship on the 4th of February 1952, and the King died two days later. <laughs> That's what he thought of the idea. It was planned that in the event of a nuclear war, the Queen and Duke of Edinburgh would take refuge aboard Britannia off the northwest coast of Scotland. Now, I'm not sure how easily that could have been organised with just a three-minute warning. <laughs> the ship's name was a closely guarded secret and was only revealed when she was launched by the Queen on the 16th of April 1953. I named this ship 
Britannia, make Britannia face. <laughs> Which was obviously shortened to Britannia. Uh, she smashed a bottle of Empire wine against the ship as champagne was considered too extravagant in post-war Britain. Britannia sailed over one million nautical miles, the equivalent of once around the world every year, visiting 135 countries and making 696 foreign visits. The last trip brought Chris Patton, the last governor of Hong Kong, and the Prince of Wales back from there after its handover to the People's Republic of China on the 1st of July 1997. So it was a slow boat from China. <laughs> yes. Uh, she, yes, I do the groaning ones. Yeah. So uh, she has since been permanently moored at the Ocean Terminal in Leith, near Edinburgh, and receives over 300,000 visitors every year. Riveting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finally, uh, after, after, after waiting patiently for 40 minutes, we get to our fourth guest, Gerard Harris. Now, Gerard describes himself as a mildly acclaimed British-Canadian stand-up and storyteller. His show, Attention Seeker, is an award-winning off-Broadway and World Fringe circuit hit. If you are hoping to catch his latest show, Attention to Detail, in this very venue, unfortunately it was on last night. Uh, but and it's on tonight. Oh, it's on tonight yeah, as well? So, fantastic. <laughs> so there we go. However... If you like what I do, then the show is exactly that for an hour. And if you don't like what I do, it's not. Um, <laughs> full discussion, it's not. Uh, 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 so, um, I know a lot's happened in the last three years, and we can't be expected to remember everything, right? Uh, I don't know if you know this, but exactly three years ago, today, in 2016, to be exact, the United Kingdom had a referendum. Hey. Yes, over whether to stay in the European Union or tear itself apart limb by limb. Uh, <laughs> uh, because we're still riddled with class hatred, inequality, and post imperial confusion about what are we for? Um, answers on a postcard. Uh, I did a postage stamp. So, um, before uh, I get into Brexit material, thanks, Richard, um, it's his idea, uh, I'll do some cheap jokes about other stuff that happened on this day. Uh, and then uh, we'll ease into uh, material that surely no one's ever done before. Um, right. The war started on this day, 1942, World War II. Uh, Germany's latest fighter aircraft, a Fokker Wolf FW-190, is captured intact when it mistakenly lands at RAF Pembury in Wales. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the joke, but I'm glad you laughed. Um, they're just lucky it wasn't a Fokker Wolf in sheep's clothing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. There's several ways the punchline can go there. Um, I know we're very close to Wales. 1955, Pierre Corbet, which actually is just Peter, uh, Peter Crow, if you translate it. Pierre Corbet, Canadian dentist and politician, was born. So my question is, how good a dentist do you have to be to get into Wikipedia? Uh, and also, how crap of a politician to be described first as a dentist and politician? <laughs> I didn't click, so I don't know. Uh, but there's a story there, surely. Um, uh, yes, uh, it's also the National Day of Remembrance for Victims of Terrorism in Canada. Um, a, there's never been any terrorism in Canada, unless you uh, count the entire genocide of the First Nations over the last 200 years, uh, which Canadians more or less don't. Uh, and I'm Canadian, so I can tell you uh, for sure that nobody knows that it's the National Day of Remembrance for Victims of Terrorism in Canada. Um, and I have several theories on this. One is because Canadians are so fair-minded 
they can't be sure if they're really victims of terrorism or victims of freedom fighting, in which case, who are the real victims? Uh, uh, or, two, Canadians project an image of fairness, moderation, respect for humanity, and a sense of justice across the world, while deep down, genuinely not giving a shit. Uh, 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 and I'm going with this one, because I'm Canadian. Uh, and I've been Canadian for over a year and a half now, uh, so I should know. It's true, September 2017. Um, and then I left. Uh, also, this is entirely true, sadly. The CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which is like the BBC, but crap, uh, put out this headline two years ago. Canadians in Las Vegas skipped concert where deadly shooting broke out. And underneath, in a much smaller subheading, authorities calling shooting worst in US history. At least 50 confirmed dead, hundreds wounded. Um, Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, 1996, the death of Andreas Papandreou, the 174th Prime Minister of Greece, and in 1936, birth of Kostas Simitis, the 180th Prime Minister of Greece. Since then, Greece has had another eight Prime Ministers. Now, initially, that makes sense, right? Because it's the country that invented democracy. But it wasn't 188 Prime Ministers over the last two and a half thousand years. No. Was 188 prime ministers since 1822, which works out as uh, one every year and a bit, um, which is some comfort, I guess, for Theresa May. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and something we here in the UK can only dream of. Uh, uh, I remember when the Greek economy tanked, and we were all, remember this? And when we were all worried it might sink the euro and then take down the whole world economy. Uh, until, of course, Germany bailed it out. I remember a friend of mine saying to me at the time, how ironic, Greece might bring down Western civilization, and we're all looking to Germany to save it. Um, <laughs> come on. <laughs> the sad thing for me, though, is the question that nobody's asking, which is, of course, what do our dogs think about Brexit? Um, ever since World War I, the dogs of Europe have been at complete loggerheads. Um, remember after the Weimarama Republic fell? Uh, come on. <laughs> when a young, ambitious German shepherd um, <laughs> took charge. Meanwhile, next door's French poodle just rolled over and let him shit all over his garden. <laughs> in three hours, apparently. Um, only the brave British bulldogs stood in the way. And also the Borzois, the Polish red setters. The renegade French Bulldogs, the Great Danes, Pugs, Dingoes, Huskies, Rhodesian Ridgebacks, even the American Pipples, and so on, that also had to deal with the Schnauzers, Rottweilers, Dobermans and Dachshunds, also the Shih Tzus, Shiba Inus, and whatever dogs come from Italy. I thought Dalmatians, but I think they're Greek. Um, and I bring all of this up because, um, well, I have a bit in my show tonight about this very topic, um, which is to say that 20 years ago, it's quite true, a Canadian dog psychologist, yes they exist, uh, created a dog IQ test. <laughs> um, uh, and he tested about 120 different breeds. Uh, and at the top, FYI, came the old English sheepdog, uh, the German shepherd, and the French Alsatian, which I later figured out, the English, the French, and the Germans. Make about what you will. And at the bottom, at the very bottom, somewhere undercutting the, British bull, uh, the, the English sheepdog, is the British Bulldog. Medically speaking, it's a crescent. It's a fucking moron. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 it very likely voted for Brexit. Um, unsurprising since it resembles Boris Johnson tremendously. Um, and the other reason I bring this up is because, well, I don't know if you've ever tried to write seven original minutes on Brexit. <laughs> Three years after the vote, when you've been living abroad for 15 years, happily 
ignoring all the news about it because, well, it's not really affecting you. Um, that said, there is a paper in Canada called the British Canadian, which claims to have 125,000 readers, and from what I can tell from the letters page, all of them are stupid. Um, <laughs> uh, except me. Uh, well, maybe me too. Uh, this is a letter, a genuine letter, that I read at the time uh, in response to the lead story uh, in their July 2016 issue titled Britain in Chaos. So, this is the letter. So, Britain's in chaos. Really? That isn't what I'm hearing from family and relatives. Yes, family and relatives. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, I've had three years and I still can't figure out what they mean. <laughs> In England. And they live there, capitals on live. As if small, as if just writing live there isn't living there, but live there. They live there. <laughs> the people who don't like it are the ones who take advantage of Britain. The Scots can do whatever the Scots want to do. They have always moaned about being part of the UK. No fucking wonder! Um, as, that was me. Um, that was editorialising. Um, as for the stock market, that's one big gambling machine, and they gambled wrong! Two exclamation marks. Okay. Uh, as for the experts, more capital letters, what do they know? Well, for a start, they know how to put a question mark at the end of the if you think that the UK is going to lie down and die, um, it's not a dog, although maybe it is. Um, uh, if you think that the UK is going to lie down and die, you've got another thing coming. Two more exclamation marks. P. Timberlake. Two things I'd like to say. Number one, no sign-off there, just P. Timberlake. That's very rude, it's not very British. Uh, or Canadian. And two, Timberlake! Who here knows a Timberlake in Britain? No, it's the most American name ever invented. Um, and, uh, shockingly, that's everything I've got on rap. <laughs> so, uh, time, so time, thank you, Gerard. Time is escaping us. Uh, so I was going to talk about Pizza Folk, so I'll just very, very briefly say... It oh, was wait, a, it, I missed that joke. Great. You oh, do you want to do that? No, mine's really offensive. Oh, no, <laughs> no it's a Sunday, so... Uh, uh, it was the 23rd of June 2011, and the American actor Peter Falk died. He was best known for his role as Lieutenant Columbo in the American crime fiction TV show. John, do you know? Well, I did after a long struggle. He died after a long struggle with Alzheimer's, and his final words were, there's just one more thing. Who am I? I told you. Yeah, right. Talk about ending on a high. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just say the last, well, a couple of facts about...